Alright, bear with me, guys. Whoops. Running a headache right now, having trouble concentrating. Even getting through this episode was kind of difficult, and that's a shame, because this is an episode I've been anticipating talking about for a pretty long time. See, this is the Roddenberry Box episode. Now, the Roddenberry Box is something I've brought up before, and have will be bringing up in the future, but this is probably the quintessential Roddenberry Box episode. This episode almost didn't even get accepted because of the box. I'm just going to start calling it the box because I'm tired of saying Roddenberry every time. You know, it's, fuel, it's too many additional syllables. So let's talk about what the hell the Roddenberry box is. There was a gentleman, fairly young, who was a big Star Trek geek. And he had a girlfriend, and, that, and he was just bouncing around jobs, didn't really have anything static. And his girlfriend happened to have worked on some of Encounter at Farpoint. And she managed to get him a tour of the actual grounds where they were working on Star Trek. And he was like, oh, cool. And he went ahead and submitted an episode that he had actually wrote beforehand. Because, I mean, why not, right? I mean, they'll never take it, but whatever. By most accounts, this gentleman <laughs> put a lot of heart and soul into that episode. Because this is like his big shot to make a Star Trek episode. And i got to be honest, I'd probably do the same thing. That sounds awesome to me. So... He went ahead, put forth the episode, and it got put into the slush pile. Now, I've discussed this before, but in brief, if you don't remember, the slush pile is the term for what television used to do and what television doesn't really do anymore. Rather than having a dedicated room of writers who all cycle ideas around each other to keep a coherent narrative across a long-term story arcs, which is what most television is nowadays, back in the day, episodes weren't expected to be contiguous. In fact, it was so odd that several people have commented on how weird it is that Jeremy from this episode hasn't returned because that's just not how you did television back then. Instead, you just took episodes, grafted characters onto them, paid the writer some fees, blah, blah, blah. It was this whole process. So there's this giant pile, and I do mean large pile, of submitted scripts. And every now and again, they would go and look for scripts. They'd be like, okay, we need an episode. Because, you know, it's a television show. Any television show is basically a non-stop production cycle. Lord knows I could speak to that, because that's my entire life right now, is constantly keeping this show going. Not a complaint, but a statement of fact. So, having that slush pile of new episodes was an advantageous thing, if you were presuming your show never had to really you know, bother with things like long-term story arcs. Michael Piller, who officially had taken over at this point in production, so Wagner had kind of bowed out, Piller ended up taking over, they didn't really have any scripts on deck, and nobody really knew what the hell to do. So Piller's like, Gah! went back to the slush pile. And according to Piller, only one of the episodes passed, must passed mustard at all. And that was this one, written by that one random Star Trek fan, a guy you may recognize called Ronald D. Moore. Yes, this was the entrance of Ronald D. Moore into Star Trek and into writing science fiction, at least on a large scale. Kind of awesome. I want to mention that because this episode actually had a rewrite from Melissa Snodgrass, a fairly significant one as well, for reasons we'll come to in a moment. And I mention that, though, because I think those two are probably some of my favorite writers when it comes to Star Trek. And that comment I have kept making over the course of Season 1 and Season 2 about sometimes the characters felt in character and sometimes they didn't, throughout this episode there are little tidbits, just small scenes where the characters are acting fully in character. 
I keep mentioning that because I feel like the difference is that some writers get their characters and some don't. Some just don't know what to make of the people they're writing. So they're like, um, I've... but so it, it felt like both Ronald D. Moore, Star Trek fan, and Melissa Snodgrass, who experienced writer who knows her chops as well, knew what they were doing when they were writing Star Trek. And as a consequence, we got an episode where basically everyone was acting in character. Even, you know, Worf, Troy, Riker, Picard, Data, everyone was pretty much bang on in this episode. Now, Moore himself has flat out stated that he doesn't get all the credit for this episode, or even some of the credit, because, you know, he was hands-off on the whole rewrite process. So Melissa Snodgrass should get the full writing credit for that. Truth is, this episode kind of turned out better than it should have, by coincidence. At least, that is my presumption, based on a relative lack of information. Roddenberry said no to this episode. Just flat out, nope. Not happening. Why? And I quote, This doesn't work. In the 24th century, no one grieves. Death is accepted as a part of life. Direct quote. Now, if you've watched this episode, you can be like, okay, I get that. Because, I mean, the best example is the scene where frickin' Jeremy is like, okay, my, my mother's dead. What else would you have tell me? He's 12, I remind you. However, if you've also watched this episode, you know that there are several scenes where they talk about how grieving is part of the natural process and how accepting death and trying to deal with that is something we have to deal with. About how Riker is torn up about this. About how Picard is pissed off about this. About how Worf is tearing himself up because of this. Because we don't grieve in the 12th century, or the 24th century, right? No. Obviously we do. The entire episode's main predominant point is about being able to cry to summarize it, you know, accepting our pain, accepting our loss, and then moving on from that and growing from it. Hell, this episode actually has some growth for frickin' Wesley over the exact same point. But I have to talk about the Roddenberry box. The Roddenberry box is, this is a box. You're not allowed to write anything outside of this. Now, the box didn't actually start coming into play until TNG. In fact, season one and two, season one of TNG had the box by far the most severely. And then season two had it a little bit as Roddenberry was pushed more and more out of control. And by season three, Roddenberry was effectively completely out of control. So despite his protests, this episode still got made, as I mentioned earlier. Now, I point this out because based on my own timeline and my stuff in the book there, which I'm just leaving here from now on because I go through this so often, um, I think Roddenberry actually said no to this before they were actually pulling it out of the slush pile. I, I, I know that sounds weird, but it's like Roddenberry says, no, we can't do this. And then they did a rewrite, and then they added the alien, and then despite the fact that that didn't change the core point, it was suddenly okay. I think we're having a time disconnect there that Roddenberry said no earlier in production cycle and was basically overruled because, well, this is season three and Roddenberry just isn't in charge anymore. For good or for bad, that's up to you. But the point about the box, it was only applied for a relatively short period of time by Roddenberry. Later on, several other people would more or less insist on the usage of the box in the creation of their things of telling, you know, we're trying to stay true to Roddenberry's vision. How many times have you heard someone involved in the creation of Star Trek say something along those lines? 
Rick Berman himself said that many, many times as his defense of what he was doing, uh, both on Voyager and on Enterprise, for good and bad. So all of this is fact, everything I just said, um, and, and with some supposition, because I'm not sure about the timing on Roddenberry's comment. What I'm now going to say is pure opinion. I think the Roddenberry box is stupid and dumb. However, I know several Star Trek fans who think the Roddenberry box is awesome, that it's what makes Star Trek Star Trek, that it's what differentiates Star Trek from other Star Trek. And I have had long, interesting, and engaging conversations with those people. I point that out because even though myself and them significantly, massively disagree on this point, we were still able to discuss it like reasonable adults, which... Hell, if there's nothing that speaks to Star Trek, I think that's it right there, right? I thought that was kind of awesome, and I wanted to share that with you guys. And that's why I wanted to say this pretty much right off the bat. No judgment. In fact, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on the Roddenberry box. You know, do you think it's good? Do you think it's bad? Do you think it's indifferent? Have you never heard of it before? I've actually heard some people, because I've referenced the box before, saying, what the heck is the box? I guess I haven't really defined it yet. I gave you the comment, you know, no one grieves. The Roddenberry box is... Humanity has evolved into a point socially where certain things don't happen, where this is Roddenberry's vision of perfection, and that that is what Star Trek is really about, this perfect, idealistic future. Now, I've already brought up several specific examples of that. I mentioned this in A Measure of a Man. You know, there's no lawyers. People who do crimes or whatnot are simply made right. Remember that? I mentioned it here. Death is simply accepted as a part of life. No one grieves. Even kids don't grieve. Um, th there are other examples, and I can't think of because i got a massive headache right now, but it is that concept that is the Roddenberry box. Now, the box itself isn't actually an in-character concept. It is an out-of-character concept. It's why there's, in the early seasons, and honestly this passed through much of TNG as well, there was no conflict allowed amongst the crew. Because we were all friends. We were all family. And it is my opinion that that is not a good thing. That while there is some wonderful camaraderie and closeness and chemistry between the cast of TNG, I felt like they should have disagreed more. I felt like they should have fought more. I felt like they should have argued more. Because that's what family does. A family is not someone who loves you because you're perfect. A family is someone who loves you because you're not perfect. Or, I'm sorry, I said that wrong, I said that wrong. In spite of the fact that you are not perfect. There we go. Sorry, I, I really do have a very bad headache. I'm going to lay down right after this. Um, to me, that's what family really means. Now, that's just to me. And again, if you have other thoughts, I would love to hear them. I would love to hear what you guys think of this concept and its restrictions on production. But if you pay attention, this is one of the reasons why so much of the cast of Star Trek from this point until Enterprise didn't really have a lot of internecine issues, for the most part. Only occasionally did that, did that stray from that. Sometimes on DS9, sometimes on Void, or sometimes on Enterprise, sometimes even on TNG. But for the most part, people just kind of got along with each other. Whether that's okay or not, huh, that's opinion, right? And of course... No, we are humans. We have, we have evolved past this. Anyways, anyways. So, that kind of brings me to my next point. The original concept for this episode is way more engaging to me than what we got. 
But I want to save that discussion for a minute. Hang on. I swear I'm going somewhere with this. So the episode starts. Um, the my, my, my shipment just shipped. That's awesome. It's some new cables to help with my setup here because I need to stretch things out a little bit more. Troy notices that something's going on, on the planet, and they take a, a few seconds to finally beam them up. I don't think it would have mattered because the, by the time Troy noticed, she was dead. But... I do like how they, they take Troy's thing as an immediate, like, huh? That's actually something that happens later, too. There's this point where Troy says, there's a presence on the Enterprise. And then they check the sensors, and the sensors are like, yeah, we're fine. And then they go back to Troy, and Troy says, no, there's definitely a presence here. And the response? Security alert. I liked that. Because it's it's a little irritating to me how in some of the earlier stuff they would treat Troy's vague premonitions as, yeah, whatever. In this case, they take it seriously. She senses something wrong. So let's deal with it. Let's try and figure out what it is. I like that. Anyways, so they beam her up, and she's dead on arrival. We have the technology now to try and resuscitate someone who has died, who has no pulse. Why don't they try to do anything with Miss Astor? It actually bothered me a little bit. She's dead. The end. No attempts at resuscitation, no last-minute medical drama, no nothing. Now, I get that the point of the episode is that she died. That is literally the predominant point of the episode. But it just felt weird that Crusher's like, oh, I never really liked her that much. Oh, well. Uh, there's this great little scene. There's some good directing in this episode where Riker is hearing and Picard insists that he's going to go tell Jeremy about what happened to Miss Astor. Wesley overhears that, and... Credit to uh, Will Wheaton and another good usage of Wesley as a character. He visibly reacts to that because Wesley has had Picard in particular come to him and tell him that his parent was dead. So of course he's going to react to that emotionally, grievingly. <laughs> in fact, as we see later on in the episode, I'm just going to cover this right now, Wesley's own personal feelings of the matter are very severe and stark. There's this great scene where he is talking with, with Miss Crusher with Beverly, and he's just like, you know, I don't, I, you know, I, I, sometimes I can't even remember his face, but then some days, you know, I, I could see him, and I could see Picard approaching, and, and Crusher, as ever, credit to Gates McFadden, is just portraying someone who is basically maybe one or two steps away from breaking down sobbing, because it's just hitting her right there, it's just getting right into that little sliding crack in her armor, getting right to her weak point. You know, I use video game analogies a lot, don't I? Can you tell I've been playing video games since I was three? And so she's like, oh my gosh, you know. I, and she grabs you know Wesley's face, and you can just tell the two are like, oh my gosh. Sharing in that moment of grief. Now, the final bit where Wesley comes in, and Troy says you've wanted to tell him for a long time. That was a nice line for Troy. That right there was good stuff. It, a little too often, writers seem to think Troy needs to be the audience's stupid character. And I feel like that's a huge misuse of Marina Sirtis as an actress, where it's like, she has to say the blindingly obvious in case people aren't paying attention. I like it better when they use her as a character who says something that we have no way of knowing, and says it in a quiet and more understated way. You've always wanted to tell him implies a lot just by that statement about how Wesley has perceived Picard this whole time, about how he's been holding on to this particular axe for a long while. I mean, the way he practically yells at Picard over this, and Picard just takes it, takes it on the, takes it on the chin. And, of course, 
It also implies that Troy has been aware of this for some time and has been waiting for it to naturally flow through so that Wesley can work through this issue. That's good. I like that. And of course Wesley was angry at Picard. Not because you brought me the news, but because you lived. My dad died. And you lived. Why is that? But of course Picard has no answer for that question. And that's one of the reasons I do like the final scene. where Which I feel was unedited from its original. Maybe I could be wrong about that. But the way the scene happens and the way the mother just walks off and vanishes... I think that would have worked with the original thing pretty much one-to-one, rather than the alien thing. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. And Worf. Worf was a perfect inclusion to this. Worf is an orphan. Worf is someone who has lost both his parents. But he was raised by the Rojenkos, and I'm, I'm actually looking forward to when we see them in the future, because they're kind of awesome. Um, so, you know, he, he was helped through his grief, his pain, his abandonment by them. And thus he wants to reach out to Jeremy and help him through his pain and abandonment. Of course, we'll never hear from him again. That's the continuity problem I mentioned earlier. Although, funnily enough, a lot of different works that are not actually canon have all referenced Jeremy in the future as having been part of the House of Moog, House of, you know, Worf's house. That makes sense, because Worf formally adopts this kid as his brother. And... Klingons certainly have a certain importance on that kind of a thing. Worf has a massive importance on that kind of a thing. Now, I know this is television, and I know this is 90s television, 80s and 90s television, but I would have liked it more if they'd at least used the name every now and again, dropped the name of, like, you know, how's Jeremy doing? Like, in the episode Family, where the Rajenkos meet Worf, I would have loved it if they said, oh, Jeremy's doing wonderful, he's going back to school, he's finally started reaching out to friends, as a callback to this. You don't have to bring the actor on camera to have that kind of setting continuity. And it's weird that in an episode that, in a series, excuse me, that otherwise does setting continuity so well, I actually mentioned this just last week, they completely dropped the ball on this otherwise incredibly obvious point. I mean, what would Alexander have thought of Jeremy, for example? Anyways. But yeah, Worf was wonderful here. His, his anger at the situation, his rage... And how this is stupid. Some old weapon from some old war, from some distant thing that had nothing to do with anything, just killed one of his people. And you just see it. Credit to Dorn, as usual. He does a lot about... Dorn does this thing where he says a lot without saying much. Kind of direct callback to the emissary there. But um, he does a, a lot of that because of the way he talks, the way he moves, the way he presents himself. He knows how to present that energy in his performance. And you could just see Worf is shredding himself over this situation. Because Worf, well, to remind, for anybody who watched my Babylon 5 stuff, Worf reminds me in several ways of Miss uh, Ivanova over on Babylon 5. Someone who is most comfortable when they are doing something. When they are actively taking action to resolve or deal with or otherwise handle an issue. But how do you handle something like this? She's dead. Done. Nothing you can do about that. The war weapon, that's already dealt with. They've already seen the report. They've already gotten the things. There's nothing you can do about that. What does Worf do in this situation. It is thus no surprise at all that Worf leaps to the only thing that he can actively take action in and embracing this child. Saying, I'm, I, I will do a croch I don't, I don't remember what it is. Uh, but, you know, the, the Klingon ritual to, to bond with him. 
The Bonding, the, the name of the episode. Because it's something he can do to try and help, even though he knows it's not going to really change anything. I think that right there is really the essence of why I still like this episode, despite the fact that the alien thing, which I'm, st I'm still building up to, I swear. Because at its core, this episode is all about the fact that bad things suck. We still try to do something about it, but at the end of the day, death sucks. Whatever else you add on top of it, whatever other personal emotions, whatever other feelings, how close you were to the person. Data has a wonderful conversation with Riker about how Data, who does not understand emotional attachment, does not understand why people were more impacted by Tasha's death than they were about Astor's. And yet, and Riker giving that response, if people felt the death of strangers as, as solidly as they did their closest friends, maybe human society would be different, is certainly a very Roddenberry thing to say but also speaks to the core problem here. One of the reasons human beings only choose, in some cases, to be so close to people is because they will die, and we all know this. At some level or another, if you were friends with everyone, imagine all of those cuts as they pass away, or are hurt, or are sad, or are lost, or are depressed, or are going through issues or have to go to the hospital or maybe they're pregnant and you're not, they're not sure what to deal with that or maybe they just lost their job or maybe their car broke down imagine caring about that many people so personally you could also argue there's the nature of the fact that human beings tend to perceive things at a more personal level by shrinking the numbers and thus by the time you have a thousand personal friends they're not personal anymore let's not get into that I've already been called pretentious twice last week. I don't feel like adding to the number. Yes, really. <laughs> uh, I, I look at this episode, and at its core, to me, it's all about the idea that bad is still bad, but it is what we do with that that matters. Aster's death sucked. Whatever else we add on top of that, it still sucked. And people were still hurt by it. One kid was abandoned by it. I mean, what are they going to do for his future? I mean, obviously Worf bonded with him, and I, I like to think he went back to the Rozankos. That's my personal headcanon here, because that just makes sense to me. You, you can't tell me the Rozankos wouldn't have said, Oh my god, this poor child who had lost his parents. Yes, of course we'll adopt him. Bam! Done! You can't tell me they wouldn't. <laughs> right? Anyways. But... Death, you know, the death happened. Now what? Now what do you do about it? There's this wonderful little bit here where Picard has a speech, basically, as he's talking about how, you know, I've, I've always disagreed with children being on the ship. Arr, this is stupid. We shouldn't have families on board. Now, I don't think Picard actually means that. I think Picard is just angry at the situation, hurt, in the same way Worf was. Someone under his command just died, and he now has to go tell another child. And you can't tell me this is only the second time he's done this. Tell another child that their parent is dead in the line of duty. You can't tell me Picard likes doing this. I get the very strong impression that 
it's one of those realities that everyone just kind of accepts because what else are you going to do? Are you going to say, all right, you've joined Starfleet. I almost said the military, but I'm trying to be polite here, you know, diplomatic. Um, You've joined Starfleet, which is a military, and um, you've joined Starfleet. No family, no kids, no nothing. Leave it at the door. Is that the ideal here? To really become that robot-like? To edge yourself into the box that far? No, of course not. And I feel like Picard understands that to some extent or another, but he also feels that the current situation is immensely frustrating because, as he puts it, on Earth you're not ordered into the neutral zone. Um, gosh, I've been going all over the place. Let me look at my notes here. I didn't like the music in this episode. Uh, it wasn't Ron Jones. And I've been trying to put a finger on this, and I have failed miserably. I'm not really a theoretician. The- theoretician? I'm not someone who studies music theory. I actually tried that, and I failed miserably. Um, I just write music. <laughs> that's, that's Whatever, it makes sense in my head. But that that gets frustrating because I can look at a musical work and say, oh, this is such and such, but I can't explain why unless I get someone who's actually studied in music theory to explain it to me. This has actually happened to me before when I've been describing the variances of different songs, their approach, their construction, etc., in this case, the music in this episode, the word I want to use is it's too obvious. It's like this light, I want to say generic strings piece that's just, this is emotional music. This is emo, right? It feels like a lifetime special every time it come on. And it actually started pulling me out of the scenes, of otherwise fairly emotional scenes, because this weird music was playing. To use contrast, Ron Jones does not evoke that in me, even though his own music is very on point, you know, very on the nose in most of its application. Uh, we'll be seeing this in next week's episode with Booby Trap, which is another Ron Jones piece, where he puts a lot of tension and energy into a song, but it's very obvious, right? But it doesn't bother me the way some of this music does. I don't know. Anybody who knows music theory, please feel free to explain to me why I feel this way. Because ugh, the music just really got to me in this episode. Um, so then Picard's like, you know, no one's alone on the Enterprise. Now, I do like that. I do like the idea that Picard really does feel like this is his family. We've already kind of gotten that across. He's got that fatherly sort of approach to command. But more to that, the point being his... What I get out of that is that the Enterprise is a community. Now, I know that sounds like, duh. But I mean its own community. That, yes, they're a part of Starfleet. And, yes, they're part of the Federation. And, yes, they're part of existence. But there on the Enterprise, they have their own quiet, tight-knit, closely connected community. That we are all here for each other, to some extent or another. I do like that vibe. I do like the idea that the Enterprise is family. That'll come up in Best of Both Worlds, believe it or not. Then, of course, the very next thing we see is that the kid is alone in his room watching videos of his mom and dad. (laughs) What? (laughs) I got nothing. I got nothing. So let me look at my notes. Um... I talked about Data and Riker's speech. That was awesome. I talked about Worf. I talked about Wesley and Crusher's scene. And then, okay, so I've basically got one last thing to talk about, and that's the alien at the 21-minute, 
45 second mark, the episode basically just kind of stops for me. I, everything I've talked about is all of my notes for about three-fourths, maybe like four-fifths of my page here. And then the last one, two, three, four notes I have are all from the 21-minute, 45-second mark and onward, because I've got nothing to say about the alien part. <sighs> Let me talk about the original episode idea. Now, we don't know how it would have actually come across, but the original concept was that the kid who isn't, who's putting on a brave face, who isn't really coping or dealing with the situation, goes on to the holodeck and says, computer, recreate, you know, Ensign Astors, and just starts hanging out with his mom. Now, I love that idea a lot. It's a great use of the holodeck as a concept and as a tool for a writer, and it presents a far more serious dilemma than what we've got going on with this alien. The alien's just a threat of the weak. You know, oh, I'm going to attack the ship, and I'm going to take over this thing, I'm going to threaten to steal the kid, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, we're... You could tell the alien was was grafted into the episode because the alien's powers are completely unexplained. I actually took a couple notes. They can project themselves. They can read the computer by directly interfacing with it. They can funnel energy out of the Enterprise. They can shoot blasts of doom at the Enterprise. They can move through matter. And they can craft either an illusion or literal matter alteration by changing his quarters into his room. They never explain which. But for all of this amazing power, they're still limited because there's only so much they can do. They can't teleport other people, and they require the transporter, and they can be cut off by force fields, even though they can move through other forms of matter. I, I don't know. You could just tell that they were just kind of grafted on, and they basically just have magic, and everyone just kind of goes with it. Because that's what it is. Let's just call it what it is. They have magic. And so they do what they're doing because magic. Now, I like the the idea that the aliens are doing this out of absolutely no malevolence. I do like that. That's good. That's a nice twist on the usual. Rather than them being simply a threat of the weak, they are a threat in a more long-term sense than in the immediate, I'm going to destroy the ship sense. This is something that will be very damaging to Jeremy as a person. He will not grow the same way. He will not develop the same way. And who knows what's going to happen to him 10, 20, 30 years down the line. That is still a threat, but not in the usual sense. And again, no malevolence involved. No anger, no rage, no evil. Just someone who is trying to make things right through a lens of lack of understanding. That's good. Um, uh... Troy keeps insisting that what they're seeing is not real. That's never expounded upon. She seems really certain that what's happening is not real. I know this is a really minor thing to bring up, but I, that kept irritating me. It's like, from what do you base that? Maybe that literally is a cat that has been replicated of the same identical form as your old cat. I don't know. Maybe it's literally a hologram. Maybe it's an illusion. Well, of course, I'll tell you exactly why she keeps insisting they're not real. Because... In the original script, they were on the holodeck. Um, so they're going to the planet. Whatever. Are they going to create a park and friends, too? Jesus. Um, yeah, that's it. That's all I've got. That's all I've got about the alien, because there's nothing interesting about the alien at all to me. 
But the holodeck idea, I want to talk about that if you don't mind. If you don't, it, that's all I've got left. So if you want to chop it off, this is a good time to do it. Because I want to talk about the idea of a kid, 12-year-old, who doesn't really understand uh, death, loss, and can't really cope with it. I know full-fledged adults who cannot cope with that kind of loss. So the idea, there's something wonderfully horrifying about the idea of the kid just wandering on the holodeck. I just picture the music of this. Of course, it'd be the super obvious music, but, you know, this, like, t tense music as the kid goes to the holodeck and says, Computer, recreate Lieutenant Astrid. Hi, Mom. And it's just totally cold about it. And they, Hi, kid. How's it going? You want to go to the park? Yeah, I'd love to go to the park. And they just start staying on the holodeck. I love that idea. It's something that Tar Star Trek will actually start to examine in the future in different ways. Barkley, excuse me. And I also love the concept because what do you do about it you could just pull the plug right but that's not the dilemma that's not the disaster the problem is not the fact that he's on the holodeck the problem is the fact that he's not coping that this is something he's doing to <sighs> there's not actually not a proper medical term for what i'm thinking of but it's it's when you hide an injury rather than attempt to treat it right when you just ignore it and it kind of gets worse. That's what he's doing here. There is this horrible problem. This kid is emotionally distraught, mentally unhinging. And I love the idea of him just treating this as if this is his real mother. Because, I mean, why wouldn't she? She's right there. What? She's fine. She can tell you herself. Ma'am, tell you yourself. Oh, yeah, I'm fine. Right, right here. You want to go out to the park today? Of course I'd like to go to the park today. Wee! And then they go to the park. And it's the holodeck. Adults can barely tell the holodeck is different. You think a 12-year-old could? And so you see the dilemma. Obviously he can't stay on there. Number one, he's not grieving, dealing with what's happening, and then getting to the point of acceptance and moving on. So that's the first problem. The second problem is you can't just leave the holodeck tied up with this kid forevermore. The third problem is this sets a horrific precedence. But, again, if you just pull the plug, all you're doing is shocking the system, which may or may not be a good thing, which may or may not lead to correct things. And that would lead to ideas like Troy and Picard and Wesley and Worf all going onto the holodeck to try and talk to him, to reason with him, to get him to accept the reality that his mother is gone. Picture the last scene in this episode. Uh, second to last, excuse me, before the ritual scene. Picture the second to last scene where all of them are there together, and Wesley opens up to Picard, and Worf, you know, and, and, and Jeremy yells at Worf because he's so angry at him, and Worf admits, you know, she's dead and gone, and this is horrible, but she's here and she's there. And then he just looks over at Hologram Mother, and you could see how that scene just sort of clicks a whole lot better if it was the holodeck the whole time, and the kid then being the one to finally accept it and have the kid be the one to say, computer and program. Have that be the sign that he has begun the steps of moving on and accepting, which is the core point of the whole episode. Then have that wonderful bit at the end where he speaks Klingon perfectly after only hearing it once, and also, you know, does a good job of becoming part of Worf's family. I think that would have been awesome and much better, and I got nothing else to say. I hope you've enjoyed. I'll see you guys next week for what I consider to be one of my favorites, uh, Booby Trap. See you around, guys.